Please take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes 2. Ecclesiastes 2. Efforts unto satisfaction. I can't tell you how much I've been enjoying this series. Um, it, it's somewhat, in, in, in some ways, the series seems a little repetitious. We're going to be covering a lot of the same ground over the next couple of months, in, in a manner of speaking, always from a slightly different angle. But I just, I have loved walking through this wisdom. I have loved being reinvigorated with the reality that, that God desires us to enjoy life and how much greater life is enjoyed from the context of Christ, from the context of God's Word. It's a reminder with the bombardment every day that we have and every week that we have that there's so much out there, the world, the world bombarding us with its, with its empty promises. It's such a great reminder of the richness of life in Christ. So I've really enjoyed it, even though we're, we're only at the beginning. A large portion of our study in Ecclesiastes is going to be examining the various ways in which humans under the sun seek lasting satisfaction. Last week we specifically talked about the, the design of man, his craving to live a full life, and how man's sin nature has twisted that desire apart from God so that uh, the sin nature convinces us that, that what we want, what can satisfy is life free from God's expectations. Even the good things in life, even the moral things, just free from God. And last week specifically, as we talked about this design, we saw that Solomon called it vanity. Can a man live a materially successful life apart from God? Yes, he can. Can a man go from instance to instance finding happiness in each of those instances? Yes, he can. Can a man find emotionally and spiritually satisfying life apart from the God of the Bible? Indeed, he cannot. There is, it's the difference between being hungry... And eating a piece of sugar, which gives you that immediate gratification, the immediate feeling uh, better, but then a very quick turnaround to eating something that has substance that will actually satisfy your hunger. We mentioned in our book sermon that the book is broken into four sections. This first section, chapters 1 and 2, being somewhat summary in Scope. Solomon is summarizing his efforts to live a life under the sun and find satisfaction in it. And what his conclusion is, as we dig into it, is that there's nothing but emptiness to be found exclusively under the sun. Last week we considered the principle, man's craving, man's inherent need for God to be a part of a life well-lived and truly satisfying. This week we consider Solomon's efforts himself. Again, this week we're going to summarize, and then we're going to dig into the individual aspects of this effort to find satisfaction. 
But this week is really in so many ways going to be a, a broad overview of all of the things that Solomon tried to, to, to find that satisfaction. There are so many things. There are so many opportunities in this life. So many things that life has to offer. There are physical pleasures. There are mental pleasures. There are emotional pleasures. Things, music, learning, amusements. Surely, Solomon's heart told him, surely one of them, or perhaps a combination of some or all of them, is sufficient to bring lasting satisfaction. And yes, he will openly admit, as we all must this morning, that in these things there is happiness. There is pleasure. But is there lasting satisfaction? Now, it's early on in the book. There's still so much to discuss. But this is the message where we consider, for the first time in full, the futility of earthly virtues to provide this lasting satisfaction. Today we'll talk about the attempt. Next week we'll talk about the results a bit more. This week, Solomon's attempt. Next week, the results of Solomon's attempt to find pleasure in exclusively that which rests under the sun. But we begin in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 this morning. And the Bible tells us this. I said in mine heart, go to now. I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? We begin with Solomon talking to himself. He's actually talking to his heart, and his heart is talking to him. This is how he's, he's describing it. Uh, my heart is saying things to me, and I'm saying things back to my heart. And what he tells his heart is, I will prove you with mirth. The idea of proving something is testing it, testing the validity of it. When God proves us, when God proves our faith, he is testing our faith. He's testing the validity of our faith. Is our faith genuine? When Solomon says, I will prove my heart with mirth, mirth. What he's saying is my heart has been making claims and I'm going to test those claims. I'm going to do what my heart is asking me to do with the intention of testing out my heart's claims. Now, when we talk about the heart in the Bible, we're not talking about the organ itself that is pumping blood throughout your body, right? That's not what we're talking about when we talk about the heart. In the Hebrew mind, and this is not an exclusively Hebrew thing, we find this in many cultures, including our own. Various parts of the body, various organs or elements of our body are associated with certain aspects of personality, emotion, and will. The mind is the seat of the intellect and the will. Now, when we talk about the heart, everything that's happening, whether we're talking about the heart or when the Bible talks about the bowels or the loins, it's all actually taking place in the mind, right? It's all actually up here. It's all actually happening with the spirit, the soul, the body, all of those things working together. But it has been broken up in the Bible and in in many people's minds to use various parts of the body in order to express something. So when the Bible or when we talk about the mind, we're, we're often talking about the human intellect or it's his will. When we when the Bible talks about the bowels, which is literally like your intestines, um, it's referencing the seat or the place where there's human longing and human desire. So when you read that somebody's bowels yearned after his son, he's longing for his son. He's greatly desiring something. Uh, Paul will write this, that his bowels are yearning for uh, the the believers to, to live a life of godliness. It's a great desire within him for this. 
The loins, which would be like the thighs, that's the seat of strength. So when uh, the loins are girt about with truth, there's an element of strength there. When uh, we talk about the, uh, a man talks about the fruit of his loins, he's talking about his children. He calls his children the outworking of his strength. That his children are his strength. That his children are his legacy. And then the heart. The heart is the seat of emotion and, infec- and, and affection. It's that seat of the emotional part of us. So Solomon is communing with himself and specifically that part that compels his emotion, his affection, his desire for pleasure. But there's a problem with this as Solomon is talking about this. See, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Solomon's heart was telling him that pleasure will satisfy. But the problem is, man's heart, naturally, that part of us that, that directs us toward our longings and desires and our emotions and, and our affections, is naturally bent in the wrong direction. It's deceitful and it's desperately wicked. What you hear from your heart, naturally, is not going to be what God wants of you. It doesn't work that way. Solomon tells us that his heart was seeking to convince him that if he pursues pleasure, what his heart wants, he will find satisfaction. So he says, fine, I'll prove you. I'll do it with mirth. I'm going to validate the claims of my desires. I have these desires inside of me that are calling to me to do things and that it's going to make me happy and it's going to leave me satisfied. I'll try it. Let's see what happens. So he says to his heart, enjoy pleasure. Go ahead. Now then, what is pleasure? Pleasure is a different... It's different things to different people when we think about it, right? Different people love Different things. Different things bring pleasure. Now, there are pleasures across the board that most uh, humans desire, that uh, there is almost a, a universal pleasure in things. There's not a whole lot of humans that don't enjoy eating to some degree or another, right? Now, some of us have tempered that desire. Some of us have disciplined ourselves out of, out of that to one degree or another, uh, d- disciplining us to eat right instead of just eating that which tastes good. But we all... Enjoy good food. There's an inherent pleasure in the human experience in sexual gratification. There's an inherent pleasure in the human experience in um, uh, relationships. There are all of these parts of the human humanity that, that are somewhat general. But then there are things that are more specific, right? I love learning. I absolutely love learning. It's just something that delights me. When my wife goes to pick up a book, she wants to find some fiction book that's just going to take her on a ride. She just wants to enjoy the book. And when I pick up a book, I'm going to pick up a book that's going to stretch me, that's going to teach me, that's going to... She looks at the book and she says, I thought you said you were going to pick up a pleasure book. I said, I did pick up a pleasure book. Well, then why does it make you angry? I don't know. Uh, I just love learning. But not everybody loves learning. Some people love this. Some people love that. Different things bring us pleasure. 
Solomon is communing with his own heart. And he's going to pursue pleasure. Every pleasure, really, that mankind can afford. If, if, a man, if, if, if mankind, if his heart says this is pleasurable, he's going to pursue it. Now, rather than going through all the scenarios of what ple- pleasure may mean, let's just talk about what ple- ple- pleasure implies. When we define the word, and we're about to define the word, I'm going to go to the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Now, we go to the Webster's 1828 in this church because we use the King James Bible. And the King James Bible, uh, in the King James Bible, the English words that are used there are used based upon the definitions of the word at the time that it was written. Words have changed in their definition since then, though, right? And so, the Webster's 1828 is the Bible, it's the first of Webster's editions, and it does the best job of reflecting what would have been running through the King James translators' minds when they actually put a word down on paper. How they thought of the word will be best reflected in the Webster's 1828. Noah Webster was also a man of great piety, so it helps us to know that he was a man that saw things from a biblical worldview when he used these definitions. So in Webster's 1828, the word pleasure is defined as the gratification of the senses or of the mind. Agreeable sensations or emotions, the excitement, relish, or happiness produced by enjoyment or the expectation of good. Personal gratification. So that which is gratifying to me sensually, or that which is gratifying to me mentally and emotionally. That's pleasure. What brings you pleasure? What does your heart say, this is pleasure? Solomon's heart is attempting to tell him what he needs to be satisfied, and he's telling him, pursue pleasure. Pursue that which will gratify your longings and you'll be happy and you'll find satisfaction. So Solomon said, I'll do it. I'm going to prove you with mirth. I'm going to enjoy pleasure. I'm going to follow my heart. So a purpose to enjoy pleasure. The word today that we, would might, that we might use if you ever hear it is the word hedonism. Hedonism. The pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. But notice that even before Solomon talks about this indulgence, he reminds us of something. He says, behold, this also is vanity. He already tells us, before he even tells us what he pursued, he said, oh, by the way, it all lacks that which is necessary for lasting satisfaction. He considers the laughter which his hedonism introduced. He said, yep, there, were, there, were, there was laughter. I pursued pleasure and there was laughter. He considers the mirth, the general merriment which he experienced. And he stated, it is mad. He asks of mirth, what's the point? The laughter, he says, all the laughter that was brought up by all of these pleasures I pursued, it's just madness, it's craziness. It's not real. It's temporal, it's empty. All of the mirth, all of the enjoyment that I had, what good did it get, bring me? What, what lasting satisfaction was there in it? If you've ever interacted with a person who's not in his right mind, when we talk about this word madness, craziness, what a madman perceives as good or enjoyable or pleasurable might be very different from a person in their right mind, right? Right? I interacted with a man in the jail just a couple weeks ago who was uh, bipolar schizophrenic and um, had some serious 
serious problems. And as I was attempting to communicate with him, about 10 minutes into that um, communication, I realized he and I weren't even in the same world. That as I was telling him something, what came back to me was so different. He, the way he perceived my words was so different than what I was actually telling him that literally we could not even communicate. There was a, a, a degree of madness there uh, where either he or I was out of our right mind. Solomon says, when I was laughing, when I was enjoying these pleasures, what I realized now at the end of them is that my perspective was off. That yes, there was some temporal enjoyment in this, but you know, there was actually, it was actually not, not worth it. It was not actually worth even laughing about. It was so empty. So what did he do? Let's dig into these pursuits of pleasure. He said in verse 3, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. There are two related concepts. So Solomon says the first thing he, he did in order to pursue pleasure was he pursued alcohol and then the activities that alcohol induces. Now it's important to understand what he's describing here. He says he gave himself to wine, but he was also careful to state, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom. What this means the idea behind this is that while Solomon pursued the natural ends of alcoholic intoxication, he, he pursued wine, he pursued intoxication, and he did so with sufficient, uh, to, to the degree that he could reduce his inhibitions, which is what alcohol does for many people. He did so with sufficient control over his spirit so as not to become enslaved by alcohol. He wished to have the enjoyment but in measure without losing himself in the enjoyment and so destroying himself. He wished to give himself over to the promises of pleasure, but yet with keeping his self-possession. He wished to gain the sweetness in his mouth without the bitterness in his belly. Now, there, we, and, and perhaps you've known some, if you've known some alcoholics in your life, there are some people who are able to guide themselves so that they do not end up in drunken madness there are habitual pleasure seekers who yet know how to stop at a point so that they do not become utterly debauched. There are some people who always flirt with that line and yet it never seems that they completely cross that line into utter abject alcoholism. Solomon was one of those who said, I, I, I gave myself to wine. I allowed myself to become inebriated. I allowed the intoxication to lower my inhibition so that I would do things that a wise man would not otherwise do. But I was, I stopped myself before it completely ensnared me. Now we all know the, the implications of the fact that Solomon gave himself unto wine in order to take hold on folly. In an intoxicated state, the mind loses reason and restraint. One is compelled to pursue things of foolishness and even evil while in a state of intoxication. So, you know, we're warned about intoxication in the Old Testament and the New. We could go to Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35, which reads this way. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine. 
they that go to seek mixed wine. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent, and stingeth like an adder. Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I shall seek it yet again. This is the legacy of the alcoholic. The one who... uh, as, Sol- as Solomon describes it, as Solomon did write Proverbs 23 most likely as well, the man that has woe, the man that has sorrow, the man that has contentions, the man that is babbling, the man that has no control over his own speech, uh, the man that has wounds without cause, they're hurting themselves, they're falling over, they don't even feel it, the man that has redness of eyes, uh, the, the man that cannot stand aright, he's, he's walking as if he's on a ship, right, on the top of a mast, he's, he, he is not stable, um, the man that, that um, is, is is inflicted with pain but doesn't feel it. Uh, and then when he awakes from that stupor, when he awakes from all of that misery, he pursues it again. And that's the end result. That's, that's, that's the, the direction that wine heads in. The man who beholds strange women, immorality, utters perverse things, no inhibition of action or word. It's the legacy of intoxication and and why it is found in nearly every generation of the Christian church that the church has stood in utter opposition to alcohol, with perhaps the notable exception of this generation. It's not explicitly because of what it is, but it's what it does to men, what it leads men to do. But this is what Solomon was seeking, right? Because he needed, he was going to prove his heart, he was going to pursue pleasure. He was seeking to lower his inhibitions for the purpose of pursuing the follies that wisdom would otherwise disallow him to pursue. So he does so. He gave his heart to wine. He was careful not to become enslaved by it, but he gave his heart to it. And he laid hold on folly to see if folly could bring the pleasure and the satisfaction that his heart promised. But there's more. He says then in verses 4-6, through I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Solomon developed in his wisdom a tremendous love for beauty and order for the arts and for for those elements of, of humanity. His reign, Solomon's reign, was one of undisputed peace. He did not have days of war. He was not a warring king. Uh, he was undisturbed throughout his reign. And so he was free to pursue beauty and order without the fear of, uh, if he builds a city, it's going to get torn down. Uh, without having to worry about those elements of a warring king, the destruction and the distractions of conflict. Uh, and these works were truly, truly great. First Kings chapter 7 describes the house that Solomon built for himself. It was made out of the cedars of Lebanon. The Bible tells us that the house was approximately, it gives us the, the cubits, but it was approximately 150 feet by 75 feet by 45 feet tall. That floor plan would give him 11,250 square feet of house. He describes the house as having 45 cedar columns in three rows of 15. Now, cedar columns are beautiful, but these weren't just little eight-foot columns, right? Remember how tall I said his house was? 45 feet tall, high. 
imagine 45, 45 foot columns. Cedar, all cedar. Now there's a lodge for you. Beautiful. He also built a hall of judgment, a palace for his first wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. According to 1 Kings 9, 15 to 22, he built temple cities. He built store cities. And he built treasure cities. Literally cities specifically to hold his treasures. Cities specifically to take care of the food storage. Cities specifically for worship. He also delighted in the natural world. He planted vineyards, gardens, and orchards. Solomon constructed many pools of water, but not just pools. He speaks of using these pools to water the wood that brings forth trees. What this means is he had an extensive and elaborate irrigation system in order to water all of his orchards. He had technology. He had put together some really incredible things. Perhaps some of you can relate to the idea of joy found in labor. Maybe some of you, for you, happiness is when you're wrist deep in topsoil of your garden. Perhaps some of you, happiness is when you're out in the shop, banging on your car, or banging, or, or, or cutting, cutting and whittling wood. That's the idea here. Solomon gave himself to build great things, to plant things, uh, to, to spend the time in nature, to, to see things grow, to nurture those vines into health and into production. And yet Solomon says it wasn't enough. Verse 7, he says, I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. Uh, Solomon makes a distinction here between the servants and maidens and the servants born in his house. Servants born in the household of a king would have had more rights and more privileges than servants that he would have purchased uh, or that he would have commissioned, the servants and maidens that he would have commissioned. Uh, the, the number of attendants in one's house was a symbol of stature to a man or to a king. In the scriptures, the queen of Sheba came and saw Solomon's wonders. And the scriptures tell us that she marveled at the number of Solomon's attendants. Josephus. Now, Josephus was a Jewish historian and he was admittedly biased. He would oftentimes inflate numbers to make the, uh, a Jewish person seem better than he was. He would inflate the numbers. But Josephus describes a massive entourage that would follow Solomon anywhere he went. He actually spoke of 1,000 chariots and 20,000 horsemen that would follow, that would, that would um, uh, escort Solomon on any of his travels. He said that all the drivers of these chariots and all of the riders of these horsemen would be strong, capable physically uh, um, superior young men, that they would have long flowing hair and purple robes, that they would take uh, um, gold and they would powder that gold and then they would take that gold powder and they would put it into the hair, the long hair of these men and women so that as they rode or as they walked alongside Solomon in the sun, literally their heads would glisten like putting glitter in your hair, except this was gold powder. And so their heads would glisten with gold as they went from place to place. This was the nature of Solomon's servants. This was the nature of his wealth and his, his magnificence. He had great and small cattle, he said, above all that were in Jerusalem before him. We don't really know what this means, but I can tell you this. When Solomon dedicated the temple of the Lord, do you remember the sacrifices he made? 20,000 oxen. 
no, excuse me, 55,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep was the sacrifice. 55,000 bulls and 120,000 lambs were sacrificed on the day that, that, that the temple was dedicated. That's a lot. And that was only a portion of what he had. Here we find a man that had honor, fame, and wealth to the highest heights. No one could disparage his accomplishments. No one could speak against his greatness on that day or today. But it wasn't enough, he says. Remember how he started this. It's it's vanity. Verse 8. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. We considered a couple of weeks ago the financial state of Solomon that he caused silver to be like rocks in the streets in Jerusalem. Silver was everywhere. Like, literally, if, uh, there was, there, it, it was so prevalent that it was lying around. <laughs> but beyond just silver and gold, the Bible says he procured peculiar treasures from kings and provinces, like an antique dealer, or like a historian who would scour the world to find that one little thing to add to his collection, that exciting piece of history, that exciting or unique trinket. Solomon found himself the proud owner of what he only describes as peculiar treasures from kings and provinces. Who knows what that means? But I can guarantee you it was pretty special. As Solomon's diplomatic and trade routes covered the whole of the known world, the treasures must have been great and vast and varied indeed. He had all the wealth he could possibly want. Furthermore, he pursued arts with great vigor. Men and women singers, those who played instruments, Solomon calls them the delights of the sons of men. The very best the world had to play in Solomon's courts. Now remember, Solomon could not just go down to the local shop and buy a CD of the greatest singers in the world and listen to it. You had to listen live or you didn't listen at all. You either had the best or you only had second best. He had the best. They were in his courts. They lived there. They ministered to him. They sang to him. The best in the world. He had his own best singers. Spared no expense. And for all of his great wealth, all of his unique treasures, access to all of this beauty, all of this music, all of the arts... He says it was vanity, like sugar to the tongue. It would be a momentary pleasure and then it would melt away. So Solomon says in verses 9 and 10, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eye desired I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy for my heart rejoiced in all my labor and this was my portion of all my labor. Solomon says, I was great. I got greater by the day. I have my wisdom. It remained with me. What I wanted, I took it. What I thought of, I got it. He says his heart rejoiced in these efforts. There was happiness there. With every coin he earned, with each building he built, the honor gained, the notes that he listened to on the music, uh, the, the special trinkets that he got, the drops of wine he consumed, each folly... His deceitful and wicked heart rejoiced. But unfortunately, he says, there was nothing more than that. The rewards of my efforts were that enjoyment and nothing more. As I stepped out of whatever it was that I enjoyed today, there was nothing lasting in it. The only thing that I had from it, the only thing I gained from it, was that which I had while I was performing it. And that's it. 
Then the pleasure was gone. Then it was over. He says, the portion of my labor was the labor itself. The portion of the activity, the thing that I got from it was what I did. That's it. He says, I pursued the immorality and it was, enjoy, it was enjoyment while it was there. And then I left and it was, there was nothing left of it. It was empty. He says, I pursued the building project and I built and there was pleasure while I built. Got to the end and I said, wow, that's great. And then it was over. That's it. That was the reward of my labor was the labor. That was my portion. He says, and then the craving returned. I needed something new. I needed something more. The longing returned again. There was no lasting satisfaction. Verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. All of the selfish living, all of the labor, all of the things, all of the wealth, all of the greatness, all of the pursuits, madness, folly, joy, mirth, wisdom, it was empty. Not just, not just vanity, not just lacking permanent satisfaction or lasting satisfaction, but he said vex, vexation of spirit. It actually troubled him. It actually caused him pain and suffering. So that as he started doing these things, he, he, he stepped into it, not even really enjoying it because he knew that it wasn't going to be worth anything. Have you ever been there where you've done something and you've enjoyed it, but then you stop enjoying it because you know that it's just not really going to give lasting satisfaction, but you're still doing it, but you're not really enjoying it anymore because it's just empty and you know it's empty. You play video games and at some point video games just, it's like, it's not really doing much for me. I'm, I'm past that. You, you can kind of get past certain elements of your life. You say, yeah, I used to enjoy that. Now I'm just kind of past that. What do you mean when you say that? I'm just kind of past that now. Well, it means it gave enjoyment for the time, but you got to a point where there was something else. There's just, it's just not really, it's not really doing it for you anymore. Solomon says, that was it. It was actually vexation of spirit now. All of these things that were supposed to give me pleasure, that my heart promised would give me lasting satisfaction, it just stopped being that. I'm kind of past it. I'm, I'm, I'm over it. He says, there was no profit save for the temporary momentary happiness that it provided. Verse 12. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly for what can the man do that cometh after the king, even that which hath already been done. Hath been already done, excuse me. Solomon speaks of this experiment to test the claims of his heart regarding wisdom and madness and folly. He asks, what can man do that comes after the king? To which he answers, everything that's already been done. And is this going to be different for anyone else? Is it really going to be different for us in 2017 than it was for Solomon? Is it really going to be that different? Is our pursuit of mirth and pleasure, maybe because we have more options at our disposal, because we can actually have the greatest singers in the world going through our speakers in, the, in our own home, even though we're not wealthy, because we can have all of these things at our disposal. Is, is, is it going to be different for us? And he says, can man do anything different? Is it going to be, are you going to do the same experience and find different results than me? No. No, you're not. No one should expect any other result than that which Solomon received. A man might argue, sure, that's Solomon's experience, but I want to try it for myself. And you know you can. Some of you might. 
Your heart is telling you that certain pleasures will give you lasting satisfaction, and you might be inclined to believe it. But Solomon candidly states that his experience will be realized by many which come after him. But none of them will realize a different result. Verse 14 and 15. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. So now he's contrasting the wise things that he did with the foolish things that he did, okay? So the things that we might call profitable, the building projects, the technology, things that actually like improve people's lives and, and, and were, were virtuous in and of themselves. And then the, the foolish things he did as he pursued intoxication and immorality and his 700 wives and his 300 concubines and all of those things and he says I did perceive this he says in my experiment which by the way was an experiment that spanned years probably decades he said I did recognize that wisdom is better than folly and madness that the way of the wise is better than the way of the fool that the things which Solomon did that were virtuous and productive the wise things were better than the crazy and foolish things that he did that the way of the sound mind is better than the way of the intoxicated mind that the way of the diligent is far better than the way of the lazy we'll talk more about these in weeks to come and so there is some degree of scale here in other words a person might find more might be able to find more satisfaction outside of God in having a house and two cars and a family than the man who's sitting in jail uh, completely um, addicted to drugs and alcohol and has no future right but But, and this is where Solomon makes the next distinction, he says, yes, wisdom is better than folly as far as light is better than darkness. But, the same thing happens to them all. And that's death. Solomon says, then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, verse 15 and 16, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that all, that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise man more than the fool forever. Seeing that now, that which now is in the days to come shall be all forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As a fool. Look. You can pursue the things of this life unto House and cars and things that enjoy it. That the society would say, yep, you're a successful adult. And you've got a retirement fund and you've left something for your children and you've been a good citizen and you've uh, been active in your community. And that's better from a human scale. That's better. And you're going to enjoy life a whole lot more than the person who is pursuing the folly and the madness of this life. But here's, here's the kicker. Both the wise man... And the fool are going to die. Living a a life of wisdom doesn't mean you get out of death. Solomon says, so I'm looking and I realize something. That for whatever years I spent in wisdom doing these profitable things, I'm going to die just like the fool. I'm going to die too. And there's no remembrance of me any more than there's remembrance of him. You say, well, that doesn't really make sense, Pastor. I mean, after all, in the most literal sense, if, if you do great accomplishments, I mean, we're reading about Solomon, right? We're not reading about the fool that Solomon saw outside his window. So there's more remembrance of the wise than the fool. But, but may I state it this way? How many fools are there in the history books? 
There's a lot of fools in our history books, aren't there? There's a lot of wisdom in our history books, but there's also a lot of fools. And it's not necessarily that we give all of our time and effort to remembering just the wise, just the successful, just the good. We spend just as much time remembering the evil and the, and the fool. Our colleges spend just as much time reading Friedrich Nietzsche and learning about Hitler as they do reading from men of wisdom and men of virtue. So what Solomon's saying here is, look, we're all going to die. We're all going to pass on. The enjoyments of this life, they're not going to go with us. And even if you spent your life becoming materialistically successful and so there was some degree of human happiness in that and extra human satisfaction in that, it's not going to carry over into your death. It's not going to take, you can't take it with you. The Egyptian pharaohs thought you could, right? That's why they got embalmed and then they put themselves in the sarcophagus and they surrounded themselves with the riches of their kingdom so that they could take them with them to the afterlife. But the only person that got those riches, it wasn't them, it was the people that looted their graves. Because you can't take it with you. Solomon's saying, and so even with that degree, that wisdom excels the folly, as the light excels darkness, still, we're all going to die. And the wise man dies just like the fool does. There's no difference. Now, next week we're going to come to the conclusion. This is, that was through verse 16. And it is next week that we're really going to dig into the conclusion. But let's talk about verse 17. Because I don't want to leave you without his conclusion. We'll talk about his conclusion next week. But this is Solomon's, this is what happened to Solomon. This is where Solomon's journey took him. Therefore, he says, I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It brought Solomon to a place where he looked at life, and he had everything. Everything, right? Okay, so, so wisdom excels folly. So just do all the wise stuff. Just do the building projects. Just do all that stuff. Just listen to good music. Just enjoy your vines and your orchards and your irrigation and all that. And he says, I hated it all. I hated life. Hated it. And this is the legacy of those who hope for lasting satisfaction in this life. Because there's none to be found. Now, we'll, we'll talk about that next week. In our application this morning, I'd like to address just two phrases. It's technically three, but two points. That society and culture all around us are telling us that are reflected in Solomon's words here. And as I do so, I speak, as does Solomon, specifically to our young people. I know that there are plenty of adults that struggle with these things as well. The, the pleasures of flesh and of, of the world are, are not any lesser on us once we get money and once we have the ability to use it. But Solomon is speaking to young people here. He's writing to young people. Many of the ideals and the philosophies that Solomon pursued find their prevalence in the hearts of young people because young people are not inclined to believe wise, pe- wise older people. They're not inclined to believe it when wise men and women tell them that their heart is deceitful. They're not inclined to believe it when wise men and women say, I made these mistakes, don't make them too. They're not inclined to believe it. The impulse of their hearts that says that money can buy happiness, it's there. It's real. It's wrong, but it's there. And they don't have the life experience, and many of them don't have the wisdom to trust those who have gone before them. 
They don't really believe us when we tell them that the smiles on the faces of the red carpets, the Golden Globes is tonight, right? That all of the smiles on those faces are painted on. That all of the dresses and all of the glamour and all of the glitz and all of that, that, that it's all a show. But they're not inclined to believe us when we say that. That advertisers literally invest billions of dollars a year to find out how to convince you that a product or a lifestyle or a destination will mean your happiness. They invest billions of dollars in it. Billions. But you know, if it were really the case that that brought happiness, it would advertise for itself, wouldn't it? Advertisers wouldn't need to spend billions of dollars convincing you to buy something if it was truly going to bring you lasting happiness. Everybody would have it. Everybody would want it. You wouldn't have to convince a person to get it. But you have to convince a person to buy it because it's a sham. It's a sham. But young people are inclined not to believe this. So Solomon, that's who he's writing to. They aren't inclined to believe it when wise men and women around them say that life is their choice, but that those choices do matter and that they will suffer the consequences of those choices. They aren't inclined to believe it when wise men and women around them state that the restrictions under which they live are not only reasonable, but might even be beneficial to them, if done in the proper light. And that's natural. It's natural. This is how the sin nature is. It's natural, young people. But just because it's natural doesn't mean it's right. It's not natural under God. It's natural under sin. Same with adults. Your urges, your desires to seek satisfaction in the things of this life, to pursue those pleasures, it's natural under the sun. And we come face to face with these ideas all the time. First one, follow your heart. Do what feels right. This is the big one today. I often call it the Disney mantra. Because I don't know how many of you watch Disney movies. Maybe many of you don't. I hope to some degree or not, at least you watch them with great discretion. Because this is being put into you almost, in almost every single one of those cartoons. Now, may I just mention the fact that we call it the Disney mantra, even though the message goes well beyond Disney. Um tells us that children in our society have been hearing this for generations now. It's been the message of motivational speakers. It's been the message of politicians. It's been the message of educational instructors for as long as I can remember. Follow your heart. Do what feels right. What does your heart tell you? Listen to your heart. What do you think is best? And the reason culture preaches this is because culture is convinced that happiness is rooted in what you naturally want. That if you naturally want it, then that's what will make you happy. That you are naturally a good person. And because you're naturally a good person, what you naturally want is good for you. But if all of a sudden we recognize that we're not naturally good, that the heart is deceitful, that we are born sinners, it changes everything, doesn't it? All of a sudden, do what feels right follow your heart, do what you think is best, goes from being good advice to major red flags. Major question marks. Major what's wrong here that I'm actually following what I think is best. 
that I, that I actually feel inclined to do what, what my heart is telling me to do. On the authority of God's word, following your heart is not the solution to lasting satisfaction. On the authority of God's word, doing what you feel is right is not the solution to a happy life. Unless, may I, may I add the asterisk? Unless you have aligned your heart with God's heart. Instead of following your heart, you are leading your heart into God's way. There comes a point in the life of a believer as you submit to the Spirit of God and you understand through experience what God is, who God is, and what He expects, where your heart wants what God wants because you've seen how much better it is. But that's along the journey. That's spiritual maturity. That's not actually your heart. That's you being submitted to God's heart. If God created this whole rodeo, if God created it all, then he probably has a good idea about how it's supposed to run and what's best for you, right? If God created you, then he has a good idea what can satisfy your heart. And God has put all of that into a book. And he's given us that book so that we can read it, so that we can know it, so that we can live it, so that we can find that. He's not trying to hide it from us. It's not about whether God has communicated. It's about whether or not you and I are willing to believe it. It's not about whether or not God has given us the keys to happiness. It's about whether or not you and I are willing to believe him and to lead our heart into what he says is satisfying. Even if our heart says, no, 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 no. That's just restrictions. No, no, no. That's just you denying what you, what, what's really going to make you happy. It's what your heart's telling you, but you lead your heart in the way that it should go. And as we sang this morning in Psalm 19, and in keeping of them, that's the statutes, the commandments of the Lord, that's the fear of the Lord, there is great reward. But you know, you don't get the trophy until you fought the battle. God doesn't give you the reward at the beginning and then say, see, now come. He says, come. And the end of your faith is the reward. It takes faith. Let's be clear. Let's be clear about something. It's great to have dreams. It's great to have aspirations. It's great to have ambition and tenacity and initiative to set goals and to go get them. I'm not telling you don't pursue life, right? Nor Solomon. Live life. Love life. We're not talking about that. The wise man does not counsel you to reject success. Because success is rooted in this world. The wise man does not counsel you to reject ambition because it's worldly ambition. It's something rooted in the material. The wise man does not counsel you to reject your dreams because they're rooted in the material. You dream to have a family. You dream to have a house. You dream to, to, to have a, a, a wife and to uh, be able to lead a family and to grow a family. These are not bad things. But the wise man reminds you that unless those things are filtered through the word of God and they're done in God's way and they're done according to God's will and they come out clean on the other side of the filter of God's word, they will not offer you lasting satisfaction. And certainly we can say this. That everything that the world says is happiness, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, when it hits the word of God, it doesn't filter through. Which means it's not going to give you any lasting satisfaction. If it filters through the word of God, I want to have a wife and kids. Filter that through the word of God. I can find, I can find biblical precedent for that in here. There's satisfaction in it. I want to provide for them. 
You filter that through the Word of God, there's satisfaction in that. I want to be able to enjoy the virtues of life. I want to be able to enjoy the, the things of life, the food and, the, and, and, and building and, and pursue those virtuous pleasures. You filter that through the Word of God, it comes out on the other side. I want to pursue hedonism, immorality, intoxication, the things that, that I watch commercials and they say, yep, that, that's what makes people happy. You filter it through the Word of God and there's nothing that comes out on the other side. It doesn't come out on the other side. It gets stuck in the commands of God's word. says, no, that's not right. Well, then it's, here's the thing. It, you, you don't look and say, oh, it didn't make it through the other side. Now I just don't get to be happy. That's not it. It's, oh, it didn't make it to the other side. That means it is not what is required for lasting satisfaction. That means it is not a part of God's plan for my best. That means it's not a part of when I look back on my life, it's not going to be a part of that which says, yes, that was really in the Lord. Great. It's not that what doesn't filter through the word of God is what God is trying to keep away, keep away from me, the pleasures that God is trying to keep away, away from me, trying to, to tear away from me. It's what doesn't filter out on the other side is what God is protecting me from. And I'll be better for it if I have the faith to believe it. Second point. The, the, the other phrase. If I only had... If I only had, now you fill in the blank, and I'd be happy. If I only had, fill in the blank, I would be happy. Solomon puts it this way in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. The eyes of man are never satisfied. We talked about this a little bit with children, right? They ask for something for Christmas and they say, if you get this for me, I'll never ask for anything again. But they do. Perhaps the best way, however, to describe this is through John 4. And I'm going to uh, hasten through this slightly, but I'd like to cover it. In John 4, Jesus is passing through to go to Galilee from Judea and he goes through Samaria. The Samaritans and the Jews were not on good terms, but Jesus cho- chooses to pass through Samaria. He gets to a well and he's going to rest. The disciples go off to buy food. Jesus is there and a woman of Samaria comes out. It's noon. It's high, high noon. It's not the time of day where women normally come out, but she comes out to, to get water from the well at this time. And Jesus looks at her and says, give me to drink. The woman is confused. She, she says, why do you? who is a Jew talk to me who is a woman of Samaria because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans and Jesus' answer is found in verse 10 you can follow along with me on the screen Jesus says in John 4 beginning in verse 10 Jesus answered and said unto her if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee give me to drink thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water the woman saith unto him sir thou hast nothing to draw with and the well is deep from whence thou hast thou from whence then hast thou this living water water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? 
Jesus told her that if she understood the gift of God, she would be asking a drink of him instead of him asking a drink of her and that he would give her living water. Now, this was a messianic phrase, living water, water. And and it's messianic, but it also means a bubbling spring. So if somebody would, would see a spring instead of having to draw water, if they saw a spring bubbling up, they'd say that's living water. That's fresh water. That's water that's bubbling up. But it's a phrase that we find in Zechariah 14, 8, when God says that he would deliver his people, he says, I will give you living water. And so it's messianic, but it also speaks of a spring more than just a well. And the woman is confused. She says, wait a minute, the well is deep. You have nothing to draw with. How can you give me any water? Jesus then says this in verse 13, Jesus answered and saith unto her, whosoever drinketh of this water, pointing to the well shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. So Jesus makes a definitive contrast. He says, yeah, this water in here, this stuff, you'll come, you'll drink, and you'll get thirsty again. But what I can give you, if, if you drink of it, you'll have the well inside of you. You will have a, a spring inside of you unto eternal life. You'll never thirst again. She says, I like that idea. I never want to come to the well again. I never want to have to draw again. Give me this water that I would not thirst. Now, this is where things get good. Jesus says unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus saith unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou, thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. And now we're going to come back to this chunk of the passage in just a moment. Uh, but, but let's talk about the conclusion. Verses 19 to 26. The woman saith unto him, Sir... I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is the Spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. So immediately when this woman says, I perceive you're a prophet, she says, I think you can answer a question for me. The Jews say we have to go to the temple in Jerusalem or else it's not valid. We worship here in Mount Gerizim. What do you think about that? And Jesus says, well, here's the thing. Yeah, you're not worshiping God properly. It's the temple in Jerusalem where you're supposed to worship God. That's true. But he says that really doesn't matter right now because the time is now where those that worship God will worship him, not in Jerusalem or in Gerizim, but in spirit and in truth. The worship will be a element of heart and of obedience. And she says, I know that Messiah will come, that the Messiah will come, and then he'll, he'll clear all of this up for us. When, when Messiah comes, he'll, he'll clear all of this up. She was a little confused by what he was saying. And Jesus says, well, that's the thing. I am the Messiah. This is me clear, clearing it up for you. And the Bible says she got it, and she ran to tell everyone that Messiah had come. Now, let's go back to that one point in, in the confrontation, verses 16 to 18. 
When the woman questions Jesus about his access to the water, he gives this really unique response. She says, I want this water. And he says, okay, go call your husband. What a strange response. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. But you have had five husbands in the past. And now you're living with a man who is not your husband. What was the point that Jesus was making here? He was taking the offer for this living water that she interpreted as physical and was saying, no, 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 I'm talking about spiritual thirst. I'm talking about emotional thirst. See, this woman was thirsty. She was looking for lasting satisfaction. And she said, I can find it in the affection of a man. So she went from husband to husband to husband looking for that satisfaction. And I've met, I can't tell you how many times I've talked about this passage to women in the jail and they're just nodding their head. Yep, going from man to man to man to man because she's craving emotional satisfaction. She's craving someone to care for her, someone to love her, someone to, to support her. She's craving that. This woman was thirsty. She was craving. She was craving something on the inside. And she was going from man to man to man saying, if I only had that man, he'd be the one that would make me happy. So she'd leave the one and go to the next. And if I, then, then, then she, she gets that, that honeymoon period. And then it's not working out. So now she says, he's not the one. So if I only had that perfect man, then I'd be happy. She's thirsting for something. And she's, she's taking a drink from one man, and then she gets thirsty again. So then she goes to the next man, and she takes a drink. And, and, and it's fine, and then she gets thirsty again. And then she goes to the next man to take a drink, and it's good, and then she gets thirsty again. And so she's keeping having to come back to the well, the emotional and spiritual well of satisfaction, looking for that which will make her happy. And Jesus said, I can give you a well inside you springing up into eternal life so that you'll never thirst again. What he was telling her is that she had been looking for satisfaction in in the wrong place. And if she would start looking in the right place, she could have it. This world will leave you thirsty every time. And it never really goes away, right? When you're a kid, it's put it on your Christmas list. If I only had this, I'd be happy. And then you get bigger and you get more money and the toys get bigger and the stakes get higher, but it never really quits, right? If only I had this, I'd be happy. If only I had newer, bigger, faster. If only I had younger, prettier. If only I had fill in the blank, I'd be happy. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Solomon is telling us that he went to every well Every well. He went to the well of alcohol. He went to the well of immorality. He went to the well of building. He went to the well of orchards. He went to the well of money. He went to the well of arts. He went to the well of... He went to every single well. And he took a drink of every single well. And every single one left him thirsty. After the fact. Some of them may have had better tasting water. Some of them may have had worse tasting water. But every single one left him thirsty. And with that, just one more point, because I said we're going to come back to this point every single week, so let's do it. Man 
can find lasting satisfaction. I mentioned it. Every single week we're going to emphasize this point. And we're going to do this by giving a verse which reminds you where lasting satisfaction comes from. I'm not going to explain it. Now we could have just left it with John 4, right? We could have done that, but I'm going to give you one more. I'm not going to explain it. I'm just going to read it. It's written by Peter. Uh, and Peter is actually quoting Psalm 34, but it's written by Peter. 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12, he writes this. For he that will love life And see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew, that means reject evil, and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue, that means to pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Solomon. Thank you for Ecclesiastes. Thank you for these, these words of wisdom. I pray for God's people, young and old alike, that they would be seeking their satisfaction in the well of Christ. Yes, there's pleasure to be lived in life, but only lasting satisfaction to be found when we live it in the context of Christ when we filter it through the word of God and it comes out clean on the other side. Father, I pray for God's people. I pray that they would find their lasting satisfaction in that which you have given to them. I pray that if there are any that have never even come to Christ, if they've never actually even had the, been given the, the spring, Lord, that they, would, that they would accept Christ's offer to be given that spring of water welling up unto everlasting life and then unto true satisfaction. May you be honored and pleased, not just in how this is understood and taken, but in what we do with it. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be active in our hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.